0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by
1: Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com.
2: Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feet, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering the sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media.
1: That's been my bigger social media thing. Is like I think like I just get bored very quickly, and even when things are working really well, I'm like everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore.
2: Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like? It sounds okay. like, and that's why. No real good re- rhyme or reason to any of it. But that's also kind of been our style this whole time and producing content that resonates with young and old.
1: You know, if someone
2: doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, that I really yeah. failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral too is that um, then it becomes, it's out there. And, and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming yeah. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Hi, I'm Eli Sussman, chef and co-owner of Samisa Restaurant, and welcome to the line. A neighborhood restaurant may be the holy grail for most chef owners. After spending years in massive restaurants with multi-million dollar build-outs, you'll often hear chefs yearning for an opportunity to consolidate their passion and skill into a smaller place and cook the food that they want to cook. A neighborhood spot can potentially be more manageable than a large Manhattan flagship or a hotel location. The financial burden of a more cozy, neighborhood-vibe spot is usually smaller, and if you can keep the staff lean and the menu tight, it can allow you to potentially avoid some of the pitfalls of a larger-style operation, labor overruns, food waste, and massive dining rooms and luxe kitchens with expensive fixtures, millwork, and equipment. But today, we'll be discussing both sides of this coin, as my guest has spent time in large kitchens, then opened up a neighborhood spot, and now embarks on a new opening in a hotel, sort of returning to the large, multi-layered operations where he originally cut his teeth. So today, we're talking about restaurant projects big and small, expensive and less expensive, with Jake Lieber. He is the chef partner, along with Chef Aidan O'Neill, at Greenpoint Bistro Chez Matante, which opened a few years back to rave reviews. Chez Matant received a 92 from New York Magazine, two stars and a Critics' Pick from Pete Wells in the New York Times, and four stars from Robert Seitzma. After their success in Greenpoint, they recently joined up with John Nydick uh, to flip the F&B inside Williamsburg White Hotel and opened the new La Crocodile. Welcome to the show. Hi. So I want to start with Chez Matant. Uh, Can a neighborhood restaurant actually be created or does it happen did you guys go in with the mindset of let's create a neighborhood spot or um or did it happen organically around you
4: um i think based on uh location it's kind of impossible not to fall into creating a neighborhood restaurant um i think it's it was essential but we were looking for it also yeah and so you opened in Greenpoint on kind of a
3: a side street, not like a mm-hmm. huge foot traffic area. What was originally appealing to you and Aiden when you saw the space? Or was it kind of like we really want to open something and, okay, this space is adequate for what we want to do?
4: Um, it was more the latter, but, um, I mean, at that moment in time, anything that could have gotten us out of our slumps we were both in kind of our own like doldrums in our careers i think and um any opportunity was exciting and uh and it was a corner and i've always been told take a corner spot so before we we rewind like all the way
3: back to your childhood i do want to talk about kind of that meeting when you and aiden were both kind of doing your own thing you were almost like out of cooking a little bit to a certain extent, like you were thinking about maybe taking a break. Um, and, and how did you guys kind of come together?
4: Yeah. I mean, I had, um, I had kind of become disenchanted a a little bit with the industry, but I think that's normal. I think we all experience burnout at some point and to not acknowledge it is crazy. But, um, but I, I wasn't acknowledging it at the time. I, I thought that maybe I needed to seek, seek another path, but, um, uh yeah i mean uh, where were you exactly and like w- in your headspace
3: and literally were you working somewhere or i
4: i wasn't um i had uh it was a really odd year. I took a year off um and spent a lot of time doing nothing but also kind of investigating other ways to be involved in food and um like working in commissaries here and there and thinking about startups that uh, could possibly possibly be a little bit like more mass marketable. Um, but nothing really stuck. I, I didn't find that interesting at all. And I think that um, it wasn't hard to realize that really what I wanted to do was restaurants. And that's kind of what, it's not kind of, it is exactly what I had originally fallen in love with and felt close to and wanted to recreate
3: So we'll come back to you and Aiden joining up together, and I know that you had spent some time working together, which is how you got to know each other. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're originally born in L.A., but you really grew up in New York, right? And before we went on air, you were saying that your mom was the maitre d' at Jams at at Waxman's first restaurant, right?
4: That's right. My mom. Well, my mom has an actually really interesting um, history in the restaurant business, and. It's funny because I really always thought I was gonna follow my um, my father's path and my brothers. They're all in they were all in music. My father was a songwriter. My brothers are like writers, producers, and on studios in Los Angeles. And I really thought that that was like gonna be my calling. And um, but it, it wasn't. I ended up following uh, in my mother's footsteps. And uh, she she was actually discovered. She had a, a little clothing boutique uh, down the block from uh, Mr. Chow L.A. And then, uh, Michael saw her and, uh, pulled her into Mr. Chow's and trained her and taught her about, um, hospitality, but also design. And that kind of like, that sent her on a whirlwind of, you know, restaurants in the eighties, which was apparently, you know, the golden age of hanging out and. And partying with celebrities
3: partying, and yeah. and having politicians and celebrities come in all the time to exactly. jams. Um, when you were we growing up here, uh, your your family was like splitting their time between L.A. and here because your oh, my father,
4: my father, lived uh, lived in Los Angeles, and um, he
3: wrote for a lot of folks, right? He did a lot of soundtrack work and also yeah,
4: he was a lyricist. Mm-hmm. He was part of a songwriting team, uh, Lieber and Stoller, and they wrote things for Elvis yes. right and they
3: I mean a lot of hits under, yeah. under their belt so and your your family they're involved in in that field still today so I assume that has a lot of impact on your on your life and the decisions that you've made are would you consider yourself a musician as well like is that no. something that you ever dabbled in
4: I mean yeah of course I of course I did but I'm not a musician anymore <laughs> now. I mean I play guitar every once in a while I like, get home like really late and <laughs> I feel inspired but
3: Um, do you, uh, do you see any connection at all between like what your parents did and what you do or is, do you draw like a hard distinction between that?
4: Sometimes I do. And I, and honestly, I mean, later when we talk about me and Aiden, I have like a really funny analogy, I think about our partnership. But, um, uh, when I think about what my father did, uh, I think there was a human there was like this very human quality to his songwriting. Um, it was very accessible um, in a lot of ways, but there was also a lot of nuance to it. And um, and there was definitely this very like connective human mass appeal that I think somehow is somewhere in me somewhere. You know what I mean? I'm not sure to in what capacity, but I think that uh, there's some element of that. And my mom is really essentially um, like... As far as I know, I think probably the greatest host of all time. So, you know, whether it's a dinner parties at home, which were very frequent or anything like that. Like Jonathan told me once that uh, no one's ever done what my mother did in, a, in restaurants or like since. Or, mm-hmm. Oh, God, I can't. That's so inarticulate. But yes, you get it. You get yeah.
3: It. And... It's cool that your mom ended up working there because that ends up being your entry point as well into restaurants, right? So yes. you get a summer job and talk a little bit about that. You're you're a New York kid, right? You're right. thinking about what you're going to do with your life. You get accepted into Wesleyan, right? And uh-huh. you're looking for a summer gig. Most people would probably just I don't know, fuck around all summer, and you decided to go work at one of the busiest restaurants that you could possibly find. So what did you do?
4: Yeah, I mean, it was funny. My mom, uh, exact, like exactly that. She was like, I'm not going to let you sit around and get drunk all summer with your friends. You need to have a job. And I was like, okay, whatever. She's like, well, why don't you go work for Jonathan? At least you'll learn something. I was like, you know what? That's a great idea. Let's... I'll go check it out. I show up our bubrudo in like cargo shorts and I have no concept of the rules because kitchens are mandated by millions of rules and almost all of them are unwritten. You know, what I mean, you have to whatever. There are a million rules. So I came in without any expectation or knowing at all what to do, having no knife skills, having Really zero experience, um, and I think it was like my third night. Uh, Justin is notorious for his uh, explosive uh, personality, I guess you could say, and um, he fired someone on the line, and he said, "All right, Jakey, um, here's your shot," and he threw me on Garmage and uh, and let me like go down in flames. Jeez. but it was really exciting, and uh, is that summer was a blur you know you know there's there's really nothing to lose
3: because you're brand new you don't know anything and really the only thing that you can kind of do is just a little bit better than than terrible, considering that you didn't know what anything was going on but like what made you want to come back like you saw someone get fired for you know doing something at work that you probably maybe didn't even understand fully what was, what was really going on in the kitchen, like the movement, the tension, all these things. And then you thought, well, that was pretty cool. I guess I'll come back tomorrow. Like what was, what about it
4: made you want to return? Um, I think there are a couple things. I, I was an athlete, but not like I had matured very late, so I couldn't compete at a certain point. Like just physically, I wasn't as strong as the other kids or um, as big as them. So I kind of like stopped playing sports and I always really enjoyed like that kinetic energy of them and having hand-eye coordination and stuff like that. So one of the first things I was attracted to was the fact that, um, like my size or and none of those things really matter. Not that I'm small. Like it's just, it's, it just didn't matter. Uh, like your body doesn't matter. It's what matters is like your ability to focus and, and to use your hands. And, um, and I really enjoy the, the physicality of it. Um, the other thing was that it was really hard. So, or at least I experienced it as being really hard then. And the, the learning curve is super steep. So to get any sense, to get any sort of praise whatsoever, to even get a pat on the back is like, you have to work so hard just to achieve that from, especially chefs are like so reluctant to give you any sense of satisfaction. There was something about, it feeling worthwhile because when you did get a sense of satisfaction, you really worked for it. So, and the fact that somebody had gotten fired like that and I got an opportunity was like really, I don't know, it was just, it was cool, it was exciting. So, you work
3: there for the summer and then you do go off to school, but. You cook while you're at school. You kind of come back during summers and you're putting, every summer, you're yeah. putting in time. Um, and so every summer you come back and you're on the line at Barbudo? Yes. And do you feel at that point like you're, for lack of a better way, like are you kind of still playing around in the kitchen or do, are you starting to get focused and thinking like, this is what I'm going to do after I graduate? Or was it just well, a summer gig?
4: Well, I decided actually after the first summer – that it's what I wanted to do. So then I like arrive at school, kind of already having figured out, like having well, what I think is finding my my calling, I guess, um, which gave me a lot of leeway to f- fuck around in college. But um, uh, yeah, I had kind of already decided that that's what I wanted to do. Um, about halfway through, um, halfway through school. I decided that uh, I wanted to leave and so I tried to trade my parents two years of college for two years of culinary and my dad was like easy for some reason and then my mom launched this whole campaign against me leaving school and doing culinary school and or running away to work for Jonathan and Jonathan actually called me one day and he was like was like JK JK like what do you think you're doing he's like I'm not gonna hire you Without a bachelor. So forget about it. Just go back to school. He's like, you're having fun, right? I was like, yes, of course. Okay. So your mom put Jonathan up to that
3: so that you wouldn't flee college, Uh uh, even though I bet he would have hired you. And (laughs) um, and so you finish up, and then what do you do? You
4: jump right back into New York Barbudo, or you go somewhere else? I went right back to Barbudo. Okay. And I worked there for probably another year, year and a half. And then um, I chased a girlfriend to Brazil. <laughs> I quit and I went to Brazil. And how long were you there for? Like four or five months. And were you thinking, oh, I'm going to move to Brazil and I'm going to cook there? And it kind of went belly up and you came back? And I had thought a lot of things. It was a confusing time. My father had just passed away. And uh, I think I was struggling to figure out what to do. And my godfather had passed away. Um, So... I really did want to go have a culinary experience, but there, I think there was a part of me that just needed to sit inside myself and kind of do nothing. It was weird. I mean, you can live very cheaply in Brazil, and um, and so that's what I did. I walked a lot, and I ate a lot. I got food poisoning a million times. Yeah. Is there something for you... Do you
3: consider kitchen work to be? Do you like the camaraderie? And is there kind of a collective, like you had mentioned sports earlier? Do you feel like it's a team, or for you, is it more of a sort of individual, solitary pursuit? Oh, awesome. it's it's it is without a doubt a team sport. And so, when you come back and you're feeling kind of a little bit lost, did it did it re-anchor you? Like, did it provide you with? Were you looking? for something like some level of happiness after you came back from Brazil and all this like tumultuous activity had occurred Mm. in your life and sadness and did the restaurant give you that again or like were you still searching for it after you came back for work?
4: Well I've always kind of thought of like the kitchen as a place for like lost children you know it's like from any walk of life you can come into a kitchen and you change from your, you change your clothes and you kind of shed your identity a little bit. I mean, you can bring your identity in also, but you kind of shed it and it's, the kitchen is really the great equalizer. You know, you, it, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life at that time. If you can, for 12 hours, think about something else or, uh, uh, and really focus and, um, and engage with the people around you. It's, it's really a family, like Barbuda was really the reason i I kept going back was because um, I loved engaging with those people and engaging with them the way that we were we had developed like a really amazing culture there, and that was really something that I, I carried through, so yeah, I do think that the kitchen was a place of uh, of refuge for me for sure.
3: Are Jonathan and Justin Styles? different and by you knowing jonathan so well personally and Mm -hmm. by you working with justin um what are some takeaways for you now that you're a leader you own your own business you run kitchens what are a couple things that you can pull out of each of those relationships
4: well it's interesting i mean jonathan you know there's a reason why people call him obi-wan he looks like obi-wan but but He also has this very, like, almost delicate way of guiding you. Um, I know that's going to sound strange because maybe and counterintuitive, but he's very hands-off in a lot of ways, and he kind of sets you to task and expects you to figure it out. And he'll give you little lessons here and there, but he really is kind of, but he's always kind of, like, looming, and he's always kind of watching, and he always has his finger on the pulse but he's not really that invasive. If he thinks you're really messing up, he's going to intervene. But for the most part, he's like kind of, he's kind of hands off, but he's definitely, you feel his presence all the time. Justin is very different. He's like, uh, he is like a runaway train. You know what I mean? He's like a sheer force of will and like, talent and learning and he's super well, I mean, uh, Jonathan is all these things also but he's much older so we're putting them in different categories, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And he's incredibly creative and he's drawing on lots of different things. I mean, for like Jonathan's era, like going to France and going to Italy, those were like, those were huge steps. Bringing those ideas of cooking fresh and local and uh, that was like, that was massive. But for, for Justin's generation, like it had to go a little bit further, you know, traveling, like his wife is Japanese, spending lots of time in Japan, learning about fish butchery and rice cookery and all sorts of things and coming back and implementing like all of these different like world flavors into really what's like kind of rustic American Italian bistro. Cause Upland is really like a big rustic American bistro, but drawing on all these different influences.
3: And you also spent time working at El Bucó, right? Yeah. And El Bucó, when Justin was there, also just hits all the highlights that you've just kind of talked about. like totally. Precision but rustic at the same time. Maybe someone who isn't super familiar with what goes into cooking would say, this is really delicious, but they wouldn't know how much technique is on the back end because some of it yes. doesn't necessarily – end up on the plate in such a like a tight, refined way. Yes. Um is that is that something that th- did that style appeal to you? Because I would say totally. stylistically like Justin is of the school of Barbudo, if that's a fairer
4: to he, say. He is, but like in a weird way, okay, this is like a, no offense intended. But like Jonathan in a weird way is like the rejection or a dearth of technique. You know what I mean? He's like make it ugly dump it on the plate, like, it's food, let's go. You know what I mean? And Justin retained some of that, but really his technique – and because his, his background beforehand is in fine dining. So his technique was very precise. So I had, like, a lot of speed and energy when I got to Alimentare, but I had no way to focus it, and my knife skills were still terrible. I thought I was good at anything. My knife was a spoon – and like I didn't, I couldn't make cut any squares. I could, you know, what I mean, I just couldn't do anything that would be required of like a real cook. And so the training there was like very intense. It was like going to boot camp. It's almost like you're being funneled tighter and tighter and tighter yes. towards like
3: a specific point, which is sort of like what yes. Justin is always
4: intending with his food. Yeah, and I, I totally became enamored with his attention to detail and. Um, uh, his His exploration of palate and bringing things in to that seemed totally unrelated, but making them feel related and um, but also it was a big restaurant like you can't forget that it was a really big restaurant, and the kitchen was actually pretty small and it was really it was really fast it was really fast and again, like it was really really hard it was like it was maybe the most difficult job I've ever had. And like ascending that line in a very short period of time was like the most stressful thing I've ever endured. I got I had a kidney stone. Like, I was like 22, I had kidney stones because I was so stressed out. It's unreal. Yeah.
3: You like, at 22, you should be able to stand 17 an hour, go out drinking, and come back the next day.
4: But we, like, it was, re- but it was we wearing did, like, you down. Day. <laughs> yeah. No, but you don't realize it. Like, you think you can do anything. You can't burn the candle that hard. Yeah. Well, we did that. That restaurant was like total insanity. And It was very fun. And there's this f- fun
3: story that I read online, which is a nice way to like kind of, Tie you to Aiden and then we'll take a quick break. True. but um, Aiden was working at M Wells mm-hmm. and uh, Hugh and his wife were about to have a baby Ugg. is it oh, I'm oh, sorry yeah. and uh, and you cook some food for them at a very specific time
4: yeah right? yeah so um, his wife was giving birth and uh, we had a mutual uh, friend who, has, who uh, helped them do legal work at M. Wells and was also involved with Jonathan some capacity. And um, he came in with Aiden, and I was working pasta at Barbudo, and he was just like, hey, Jakey, can you make a few quick pastas um, for this chef, Ugg? his wife is is having a baby, and uh, his, his chef de cuisine is here. And we shook hands briefly, and I was like, yeah, of course, I'd be happy to. I'd be delighted. And, you know, I made them pastas and sent them on their way. But that was, like, that was ship's passing in the night. You know, I had no idea who he was. He had no interest in who I was. was Just, like, a line cook and, like, whatever.
3: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about how uh, you sort of embarked out on your own. And you and Aiden opened up a restaurant together. Uh, Stick with us. We'll be right back here on Heritage Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep deprived to the point of exhaustion, 63% of chefs feel depressed, and more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com.
3: Welcome back to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. My guest today is Chef Jake Lieber. He is the chef of La Crocodile inside the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg and also a chef partner of Chez Matante, which is in Greenpoint. Uh, before the break, we were talking a lot about your early career and how you were kind of continuing to focus on your skills and on your craft and folks that you were learning from. I'm curious, what was the next step on your career uh, after B- Il Bucco, after uh, you went, worked at Barbudo for so many years, like what was the next challenge that you took? And then how did that lead you to connecting with Aiden?
4: Um, so I left Alimentari um, and went back to Barbudo again, uh, but as a sous chef this time, and really started to get into management and... Um, looking at numbers and thinking about business and, uh, mentoring people, um, on my own terms, which was amazing and interesting. But I always felt like I was lacking, like there was, you know, Justin used to always say, you know, you're incomplete. There was like this incomplete part of me and I didn't know what it was necessarily, but for some reason in my mind at that time, it was fine dining. I was like, you know what? I don't have the technique. I don't have the knowledge. And um, I need to go see if I can hack it and find dining. And I had, uh, but I also secretly had this desire to run away. I know this is going to sound very strange, but I wanted to run away because the Joe Beef book had just kind of come out. And I wanted to run away to Joe Beef. And I like, watched those dudes like searing foie in their little fishing hut. And I thought, how romantic. I also had played ice hockey. And I was like, this is awesome. They play ice hockey out back of Joe Beef. And like, I want to run away to Joe Beef and play hockey. And and uh, That doesn't and sound crazy at all. But I, that was like my fantasy, you know? I had Montreal no idea how rules. to get there. Yeah. I didn't know that though. Yeah. I, I, right. I, I literally have gone to Montreal once and it was very recently. Right. So I, I really didn't know that it was awesome. But in my mind, that was where I was going to go. But Jonathan also knew that I had, like, a big uh, chef crush on David Kinch and, uh, and that I had wanted to work in fine dining. And so when we kind of came to terms, I think it was a little bit... I was a little tense for me and him, but uh, he finally decided to call David for me and set up a stage. So I went to California, and uh, I, I lived on the, their dedicated farm in a camper, which was actually pretty cool. There was a swimming pool behind it. It was amazing. Living in a camper was really fun. Um, and uh, I worked at Manresa for three or so months. And
3: did you feel when you were at Manresa that fine dining was calling your name, or did you immediately realize that it might not be the path
4: that you wanted to take? I, I realized early on that it was not the path I wanted to take, but it had a lot to teach me and that there were um, there's a level of care and precision um, that you just will never find in another kind of a kitchen. And you know, there are lots of, there's a lot of back and forth and shit talking between people who cook rustic food and, people who are in fine dining eventually that all kind of goes away when you like get to a certain level and you stop you know you once you find yourself you care less but um but uh, i really um, i really appreciated the level of dedication that the other cooks had and but and they were also really cooking in that kitchen it wasn't like it wasn't like cooking in bags it was roasting and 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 sauteing and steaming and they were really cooking with the elements and um, the technique was amazing. The flavors were amazing. And David was like the most fun person. I kind of made it my mission to just like kind of stalk him a little bit around the kitchen and like always watch him and take note because everything he does is like fantastic. I mean, he's been cooking like in the same way though. Like he's in his kitchen cooking services for so long. Like, you just get, he's just getting better and better. So, watching someone like David cook to me was like, was invaluable. And he's really cooking. You spent
3: all this time up until this point really learning, soaking up a lot of information. And you seem to be at this point uh, at this juxtaposition of like, you're not necessarily sure what your next directional point should be right how do you at that point make the decision like i feel like i'm ready to
4: open up my own spot i never felt like i was ready um i never felt like i was ready at all i mean from that moment i came back to new york and decided i want to go back into italian food and i heard that ignacio uh ignacio matos was opening an italian restaurant and just through justin i mean they were good friends just through stories I'd heard about him at Il Buco on Bond Street, the original Il Bucco, I was like, I gotta go open this Italian restaurant with Ignacio. And I, I also adored Estella, I still do. But like, I remember going there for the first time, like right when they had opened, having like one of the most fantastic meals I've ever had. And so I sat down with Ignacio and I was like, listen, I really wanna open this Italian restaurant with you, but I would love to work at Estella in the meantime if I can. So I ended up working at Estella, and the restaurant kept getting pushed back and pushed back. So what I thought was going to be like four to six months turned into like a year. But um, it was a very happy time. And I, Estella was a wonderful family again. It was like a it was like a return, but in a new place. So it was like very um, reaffirming. The 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 style of Estella,
3: both plating like from a structural plating mm-hmm. and also flavor wise, I would say that it's uh, a lot less obvious and I don't mean that Jonathan and Justin's food is not delicious, but like usually what is listed on the menu like is identifiable on the plate. There's Mm -hmm. not as much manipulation really. Right. And Estella, there's more like hiding and and layering. Yes. Was that uh, a big change for you? And also, I mean you clearly stayed there and then you went to Cafe Ultra Paradiso. so, So like did that stylistic change like influence you at all? Or were you just like, this is cool, I'm learning someone else's style, but maybe this isn't really
4: like where I see my
3: food going?
4: Well, no, I mean in my mind, Ignacio's greatest strength is is palate and nuance. So what I took away from that was not just like eating something or tasting something like like Justin's personality is very big and the plates are big and all of those things and it's like really about like eating and and being satiated and having delicious things absolutely but Ignacio's much more tactile and small and um he's incredibly thoughtful but also very simple like that was the other thing I learned about working at Estella was that is that nuance doesn't mean that it's complicated nuance means that you're understanding something for exactly what it is and 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 maximizing it figuring out the 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 best way to season something to really experience it um in the most delicious way but also the most impactful way in terms of texture and experiencing soft as soft and crunchy as crunchy and but separately sometimes and sometimes together, I don't know it was very i i really um I really learned a lot in that period of time about seasoning and uh, and just like nuance and thought I think is was huge finding a partner is
3: so difficult, yeah. and you can make terrible decisions that you can get locked into unfortunately and I'm wondering what made Aiden an appealing partner and what do you think made you an appealing partner to him?
4: Um, that is a great and difficult question to answer. Um, I think, first of all, friendship is one that makes um, partnership seem attractive at first, like whether or not you can actually stand someone's presence for a long period of time. Um, but and and Aiden and I had come from very different backgrounds. And granted, he also had like a lot more exposure, even media exposure, than I had, and I didn't. But I, I was unaware. I mean, like I said, like Joe Beef to me seemed like this weird, distant dream, and Montreal seems so far away, even though I know now that it's really not. And um, anyway, uh, I, but I had no idea who Oog was, and now obviously Oog is like a big part of my life too, and and their legacy is something that's very important to me. But like we had a lot of similarities because at a certain point. We kind of both rejected, we wanted to like reject everything that was happening around us. And we wanted to stop working for other people and stop making food that we thought was too expensive and inaccessible. And we wanted to just kind of strip ourselves of all of that, uh, that worry and that pretension. And, and we, we talked a lot about, we hung out a lot. In that e- that year that I wasn't working and uh, and we talked a lot about what was happening in Paris and the new bistro scene and also like the camaraderie that existed between um, chefs in Paris at the time and how much fun it looked, and we were like that's what's missing it's like there's no everything is so competitive and it's not fun anymore and like that's kind of what had happened to me it was like it had lost something somewhere at outro i lost the love and and the sense of fun and and we both had a yearning for it do you think that the sense of fun that was lost
3: had more to do with is it like the too much business was overshadowing the fun, like decisions were being made simply based on like, this is a restaurant and I need it to either grow or expand. And, or was it actually like the people were not having fun within the restaurant?
4: Uh, I don't think that we were having fun in the restaurant mm-hmm. and that it was just, you know what? In the end, I think I would just say that for me personally, that's not the company wasn't a good fit and it was not something that I would probably grow in. hmm. Um and neither was it a good fit for Aiden. But um but yeah, I mean the way that it expanded was was odd to me. Like I really loved Estella. I like I had nothing but but wonderful times there and felt really proud of the food we were making and just just really excellent experience. And uh and I felt like the culture would be the same at ULTRO, but it was different. It was a little bit more high stakes and um and the pressure was on in a different way. Even though Ignacio was always pushing to make to have you taste and and he's always on top of it. He really is. He eats in his restaurants, he makes sure that like everything is excellent. But if it just felt different. It felt different to me there. There's
3: always gonna be uh line cook, sous chef, CDCs like people go out after their shift and they're getting drunk at the bar and like yeah. someone whips out a napkin and a sharpie and they're like drawing up concepts and they're like we should do something. You know that yeah. that conversation happens, right? Yes. But you guys did it and yeah. I'm curious if you can just really bullet point what the actual steps were that you took from having conversations, talking about it to to really transferring it and signing a lease. Right. So
4: um, this same mutual friend that we had had um, who brought Aiden to Barbudo years before for me to make pasta, um, he was um, helping uh, Josh Cohen, who's a restaurateur in Williamsburg, um, with legal work for um, Extra Fancy. And... Um, he was having trouble with his uh, Jimmy, his second location for Jimmy's Diner, and they wanted to do like turnkey, throw a couple chefs in there, and like just see what happens. Like minimal, minimal design, minimal input. Like can we just do this cheap and fast to like salvage uh, this space? Otherwise, I mean, he has a bunch of different um, properties. That he's he's holding the lease for he, he could he could flip it and whatever but he wanted to see if he could make something happen there, um, so uh, Aiden got the lead on that and he was like listen you know if things don't work out for me at Ultra like I have something kind of lined up and fortunately for us he got fired and and then it was like. And then he was like, all right, dude, it's go time. Like, like, sh- do we do this? And I was like, yeah. I was like, but I'm not going to be your sous chef. I was like, I want, I was like on my way. I was actually on my way to partner with uh, a friend of mine from high school, Nate Adler, in Gertie. Gertie's. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, but it seemed like it was a ways out, and um, the concept kind of scared me a little bit because it it's different. Um, and I still kind of enamored and stuck on like restaurant, you know? So Aiden was like, do you, do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, but like, we need to be like, do you want me to be your partner or do you want me to just help you do this? And he's like, I want you to be my partner. Actually, we were sitting right there. Literally, we were sitting in Roberta's eating pizza right there. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, and that was it, you know? Um, I had had a little bit of money. I hadn't really been spending anything, and um we built it for we built it for a song. It was like it was nothing.
3: you know. I saw this thing online where you guys were talking about like the type of cooking equipment that you wanted and how yeah. you kind of. There's always this point when you're doing build outs and, like, you start in a new restaurant, whether it's yours or someone else's, and you want, like, all the fancy toys and you want all the great pots and pans and everything like that. And you guys were just like, let's open, let's get some pots, let's turn on, let's fire up some water and, like, start cooking stuff. And that's, that feels refreshing. Like, that honesty, you both come from restaurants that are kind of like these gleaming, shining, open kitchen beacons where it's like, a lot of theater in my opinion mm-hmm. like there's amazing cooking being done but also visually like it has to look like a certain thing and you right. guys were like let's just let's start cooking good food and is that a f- sort of fair characterization like yes
4: know- but i i don't really see them as gleaming like i well ultra was a gleaming kitchen mm-hmm. that had a beautiful suite and which i didn't like but it was beautiful and expensive barbudo i mean jonathan is always like kind of slapping things together. Yeah. And maybe it looks polished, but like, it's really not. He's like, he's, is like constantly like riffing, you know what I mean? Yeah. Justin had a little bit more money behind him with alimentary for sure. And that was a nice kitchen. But I think that like, you know, I'm, I'm obviously been hanging out with Aiden like for countless hours over over the past few years. And like, there's a certain scrappiness to like Canadian cooks and like, it's really about, like, I think they have this, like, weird, subtle competition amongst themselves about who can be, who can find more creative solutions and be scrappier and, like, they're all kind of craftsmen in their own way. But, like, like Ugg, like, is a welder and does all sorts of other stuff. And so he's always, like, building his own stuff out of found objects and things like that. You know what I mean? And, like, yeah. they all kind of have that sensibility about them. And they're very like, they're not wasteful cooks either. Um, And so we kind of have this weird similarity of like, of a little bit like, it's a little bit rebellious, but also like, how can we be, how can we be crafty in our decision-making? And, and, uh, and like, how can we reject like this, this impulse to, to want the nicest stuff? And to like, does it, is it really going to make your food that much better? Is it really going to make the experience that much better? Um, No, not really. I don't want
3: to totally, you know, slide past like the critical acclaim. But like, you guys opened, everyone came and reviewed it, and they really loved it. That's not exactly what
4: happened.
3: (laughs) The the neighborhood was into it. um, So if that's like. A misconception, like I would love for you to clarify. Uh-huh. Um, but I also want—I want to talk a little bit about like what were the pieces for you and and Aiden, if you feel like speaking to his part a little bit, like that were really difficult and extremely frustrating. That maybe people haven't heard or seen because of the fact that they think what I just said. <laughs> right.
4: Um, well, we opened, um, like I said, on a shoestring budget. And, um, our partners were really busy. They were super busy and we had no PR, which maybe isn't that necessary all the time, but we had no PR and, um, and we had very little guidance. Like we didn't know we opened and for the first couple of months, like your friends and family are coming. It's super fun. And, um, you get a good staff going at your front we had cool front of house staff and then, uh. Everybody left like we kind of hit this slow period and we had a a full turnover in front of house. Um, Aiden and I had been cooking like every single service with a sous chef um, and one dishwasher. The sous chef left. um, So it was me and Aiden cooking alone for like three months. Um, And the restaurant was in the red and we were not making any money whatsoever. I got rid of my salary Aiden took a huge hit in his salary like we were failing um pretty badly to the point where our partners were like here's the thing guys you need to become more accessible your food's too chefy which I was like there's no way this is too chefy it's like it just it just isn't it's it's not super chefy food at least in my opinion still but um it's too chef We need burgers and fries. We need some fried apps. We need pastas. Like, like, let's go. And Aiden and I both put our feet down and we're like, no way. No way. We haven't had any support. Um, we've had zero press. No one knows we're here. It's not the food. It's our front of house is suffering and we have no one to manage the restaurant And we're here cooking every single day. Um, And so we decided to, they are like, listen, if you don't do it, we're going to sell the lease. So you can do, do with that what you will. And I basically, I looked at Aiden and I was like, if we can figure out a way to buy them out and own the restaurant, we can do whatever we want. But if we fail, like, this is our, this is totally our failure. And I was like. I Was like you willing to go down with me, and he was like, I got nowhere else to be, dude. And I was like, all right. So we um, we came up with a uh, with a strategy, um, and uh, our partners were into it. And honestly, they were also really supportive. Like they've been supportive since. I mean, not like supportive in the way that I think that we would have liked at that time, but like s- they've always wanted us to succeed. They just you know were trying to trying to judge us in a way that we didn't want to be judged, so um around that time, though, we got our first little taste of press um, which was uh was it eater, and uh it was like after that we went from like. Being totally in the red, making like 10 grand a week, 12 grand a week, which is not enough to sustain and pay your rent to like, okay, now we're making a little bit more money and now we can actually afford to like pay our staff. This is amazing. Um, And then, and then like the next week, like, like Grub Street comes out. Okay. Now we're like, now we're like doubling, tripling our sales and this starting to feel good and then it's like we're hiring kitchen staff, we're training people, we're having a little bit more time to like reflect on the business and to uh to run the floor. I was change. I would prep all day and then change and like work the floor some nights and run tables and you know act like a like an owner, which is weird. Yeah. Um and then it was like, you know, one night I'm at the front door and it just like it just He just walks right up the stairs. It was super packed. It was in the summer. And a friend of ours who was helping us, uh, Craig Atlas, he was standing there, and I just, like, down the barrel of the gun, is like it's Pete Wells. I'm like, oh, shit. So yeah, I run back. I just, I just, like, turn on my heel, put on my apron, and I'm like, We're, I'm cooking for Pete tonight. And um, we, had to, we actually had to send him to the bar next door because we couldn't seat him right away, which I actually really liked. I, th- I think I honestly think that he kind of liked it too. It was like you're getting a real experience is like the, there's the wait even for your, your reservation and you're going to have to have a couple beers next door and then someone's going to come get you at Diamond Bar. Um and then after that review it was like it solidifies it solidifies your restaurant, you know what I mean?
3: We are getting a little short on time, but sure. I obviously want to f- talk a little bit about the new project which yes. is exciting. You are uh you've You've opened a new project in the White Hotel mm-hmm. uh La Crocodile, inspired by some travel abroad, and also you're in Aiden's kind of continuation of your style. Can you speak to what you're trying to do at the new restaurant and I know that you and Aiden have been spending a lot of time there, and so mm-hmm. how is it going with two months in?
4: yeah, I mean, so Aiden and I hang out a lot, and we notice that we kind of gravitate towards. Similar things, um, and like even growing up, like without even knowing it, I mean, my mom and I would go to Cafe Luxembourg, like every time we got off of a plane, we get we'd we'd go we'd drive straight to Cafe Lux and have burgers and ice cream Sunday and uh, frisee Lardon and and that was like one of my favorite things to do. So like bistros and Keith McNally restaurants were something that were like both very much a part of, like, our New York DNA. Um, Hanging out, Balthazar, this big, bustling machine that also feels so good. You know what I mean? The service is so fast, but friendly and really fun. Like, just, we wanted to have, we wanted to create something that felt like a place you could drop in at any time and get the same thing um, but, but like liven it up a little bit. Um, and yeah.
3: You sort of left, you sort of left the big stage of, of Manhattan restaurants to go to this kind of sleepy side street where yes. you then got discovered and it got really busy. And then now you're jumping back in to be leaders of this really sprawling i mean a hotel is like a it's a massive project like any way you slice it um do you feel did you feel ready when you took it on and now you're two months in do you feel like you're getting the hang of it and does it feel like the type of
4: gig that you expected it to be it's funny i um i think i came in i had a lot of energy when i came in and um I mean, if anything, a career in cooking is humbling. Um, so I came in like kind of guns a blazing, and Aiden was spending a lot of time at Chez Tant training staff so that he could he could leave and come over. I kind of did the the first leg in, and um, and I was humbled many times, um, largely because I was totally unaware of what. Like, a, what my power was in my outreach, and also how, to, how do you influence change in a large institution? In a small one, you know, you're God in a weird way. It's like, I, it's like, no, we're doing this today. And everyone's like on board, and it's a speedboat. So when you change direction, it's like you just, you just change direction. But now you're, you have an aircraft carrier. And so when you want to turn, you have to like call every department and let them all know that you've thought about turning. And then they're all like, well, I don't really know if I feel like turning. And so it's like this weird bureaucratic thing, but you have to learn how to honestly be a politician and like make change happen with a large group of people.
3: I'm Mm going to get you out of here on this last question, which is you had sort of a unexpected success at Chamatant, like it it ended up materializing in the way that I assumed you both had hoped that it would become like a really anchor restaurant. And now you have a big opportunity right here. Uh, As you go into the first six months at the wife at La Crocodile, do you feel like you're in the type of place where you're having the success you want to have, or does getting a big second project just make you hungry for more?
4: Um, you know, it's funny. I get, I get asked a version of that question quite frequently and I don't, you know, I don't, it's weird. I don't, I I see my friends and from high school and things like that. And, you know, people congratulate you often on like success. I don't really know what that looks like to me, to be fair. Um, I'm not hungry for more right now. I definitely have a lot on my plate and I know Aiden feels the same way. And when you're like really in something, you have very little perspective on it. You know, I really just feel like, I mean, up until like a week ago when I hired another sous chef, I work station six nights a week. You know, you come in in the morning, you prep at a station and you work and you close a restaurant. And you don't leave until one or two. It's like, you know, I was just doing that for a while. So in my mind, it's like we're just we're doing exactly what we need to do when we need to do it and um, taking whatever small amount of time we can to like, relax. But other than that, we're just in it, you know what I mean? I, I don't really know, have any other way of putting it. I don't, I feel very, I do feel proud of this one. Like I do think that Shematan was a lot of work and this is a lot of work too, but, but the input into it and, and having a little, having resources behind something to create something that like looks really good and feels really good off the bat, was like, was, was different and fun. Does that kind of answer the question?
3: Totally. Jake, thanks so much for being here and, and sharing about your story and, and how you've made your way in New York. Uh, is there a website that people can go to check out both restaurants, or is there two separate websites? Let people know how they can find the spots.
4: Um, yeah, they're separate. Um, Shimatant.com and uh, Le Crocodile is. Uh, there's a link through the uh, the wife website.
3: Cool, yeah. and shame Tant seven days a week. Seven days
4: a week. Uh, We do lunch on Thursday and Friday and brunch on Saturday and Sunday.
3: And La Crocodile, they're going to be gearing up towards full service right now, available for for dinner, correct? For dinner,
4: yeah, 5.30 to 11, uh, Monday through Saturday.
3: So go check out uh, the new restaurant inside the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg. And, of course, if you can snag a reservation at Chez Matant in Greenpoint. Jake? Thanks again. Thanks so much, Eli. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You can find this episode and all episodes of The Line on heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week, Tuesday at 11 a.m., for a new episode of The Line here on Heritage Radio. The Line is powered by Simplecast.